If you will join me in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 2. If you're using the blue ESV Bible, you can find our text this morning on page 410. 410. D.A. Carson recently, I heard him say, please turn on your Bibles to Esther chapter 1. I think that's probably the case for most of us. (laughs) Excuse me, Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. uh, The title of our sermon this morning is Crowning a Queen. Our key words for our worshipers in training are queen, favor, and feast. Now, I think it's probably a mix of the family that I grew up in and the way that God made me with the personality that I have with a small uh, side helping of hard-headedness, believe it or not. But there's never been a competition that I have faced in my life that I didn't want to win. And if you're anything like me, you know there are even competitions that you go into knowing full well from the second it begins that you have no chance of winning. And yet... You're going to give it all you got because you just never know. I I never have really thought there was a competition that I didn't want to win until I came across a few that I cannot for the life of me figure out why anyone would even participate in, let alone seek to win. If you've ever watched Japanese game shows, you know exactly what I am talking about. Now, one competition that takes place in the quiet West Dorset village of Marshwood in in, in England every year is one that I don't even want to watch other people compete in. There's a plant, better classified as a weed, and it grows in England, and it's called a stinging nettle. The claim of the stinging nettle is that it can cure hundreds of ailments to include dandruff and gout and rheumatism and hay fever. So it's often encapsulated and people take it as a vitamin supplement. Uh, Maybe you are familiar with that. Well, the plant itself has, has many hollow stinging hairs on the leaves and stems and they act like hypodermic needles. And it injects a histamine and other, other chemicals that produce this stinging sensation whenever you, you touch it to your skin. It's sort of like the, the sting of a cactus combined with the sting of poison ivy all at once. So imagine uh, devouring, yes, devouring stem after stem of the nettle. Not after the sting has been removed or neutralized through cooking it, but in its raw, freshly picked from the ground state. That is exactly what happens every single June at the World Nettle Eating Championships. Now, the rules of this are very strict. First, each competitor has to sign a disclaimer. And once they sit down, they are not allowed to leave the arena. Each plant has to be stripped down to the stem, all of the leaves eaten, And if a person feels sick and they have to leave the competition, they are disqualified. Competitors are allowed to drink either water or beer. Some of them dip the leaves in the water first to take away some of the sting. They have exactly one hour to eat as many nettle leaves as they possibly can. And as the competition progresses, competitors begin to lose feeling in their mouths and their tongues and their throats altogether. The plant causes a sort of paralysis of the lips and the tongue, so they begin to drool as they're eating. And it numbs their fingers from picking the leaves, and the plant is full of iron, so you know that does wonders for their digestive systems, and their tongue turns black for a few days. 
Last year's winner was among 40 competitors, and he ate 73 feet of nettles in an hour to win the grand prize. A one-foot-tall trophy and 100 British pounds, about $166. Apparently, the stinging goes away, and feeling returns to the mouth and throat after a few days, but that's what he won. No thank you. Now, there are a lot of silly competitions in the world. There are many that you don't want to participate in. This morning, we're going to see a sort of competition in our text. That if you think about what's going on, you would want nothing to do with at all. We're going to see King Ahasuerus search for a new queen. If you recall from last week, Queen Vashti put him in his place. He commanded her to do something, and she told him no, maintaining her personal dignity. She refused to fulfill his his request to parade herself around in front of a, a massive group of drunk Persian men gawking at her for the king to prove that he's powerful enough even to command his wife to do whatever he wanted her to do to perform in front of these men. So... Queen Vashti was deposed. And we get into chapter 2 this morning, and we're introduced to the main character of the book of Esther, and we'll see how the king goes about finding a new queen. There's a competition, and it's one like the nettles-eating competition. It's one you don't want to be part of. And in the the end, the, the reward is very unfulfilling. And in this instance, the difference is that you're not asked whether or not you want to participate. It's not on a volunteer basis. This is something that they participated in unless there were terrible consequences. Now, the original idea when when Vashti was deposed and sent away for the king's presence was was to find a better woman to fulfill her royal purpose as the queen. And remember, we saw back in chapter 1 and verse 19, of course, by better, the king's servants meant by that, uh, that, that someone would be found that was more compliant than Vashti. A woman who would do whatever he wanted her to do, no matter what it was. There was no concern for character. That never came up. This so-called better woman had to be young, she had to be an unmarried virgin, and she had to be extraordinary, extraordinarily good-looking. So you see what his great concern was. Not the type of person she was, but what she offered to him physically. The young lady would be objectified in the same way that the king sought to objectify Vashti for his own pleasure, for his own Gain. So the competition puts all of the contestants in the ring, whether they wanted to be there or not, simply by being members of the empire that met the criteria. If you were a citizen of the Persian Empire, your primary responsibility was to the empire itself. You were called to serve to the empire's ends, whatever that was, if it was appointed to you to do so. There was no concern. There was no concern in this instance if a girl's parents had plans for her. The king had a plan, and he wanted it to work out, and so a woman of the empire was at his command. 
Now, as much of a chauvinist as we've already seen Ahasuerus to be, these kinds of things weren't limited just to all of the women in the empire. The empire was, would happily draft young boys to serve at the king's pleasure as eunuchs as well if they thought he was qualified and if the king thought there was a need to have that. In, in, in the world of the Persians, everything that anyone possessed, including their very own body, belonged ultimately to the empire if the king wanted it. Now, another twist to this little competition is that those who lose in the end don't get to just go home. It was a sad, very sad situation as we will see how that plays out as we read in the text. That being said, the entire process that is undertaken here to select a queen, I want to admit up front, it should make us a bit uncomfortable. I'm not going to get into the details explicitly as to what the text is saying, but let's just say it's not material for the next Disney movie. The Bible is very good about not being overly graphic about descriptions of things that are, are generally considered to be for a more mature audience, but the instance of such things are here. So we need to see them for what they are and be aware of them up front. That's your warning. So let's read about this crazy competition as King Ahasuerus seeks to crown a new queen, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who please the king, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconium, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor." And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulation for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. 
In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would go into the king again unless the king delighted. She, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except for what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. We're going to look at three implications from this competition staged by King Ahasuerus. And also want to pay attention particularly to what's going on with Mordecai and Esther and, of course, God. Now, the first implication we see is this is that following the lusts of the flesh result in wicked practices. As chapter 2 begins in verse 1, it says, after these things. There's no real indication as to how long that would have been, but it's likely, based on the dates that are given throughout the book, that it's, it's probably up to around three years since Vashti had been deposed. So King Ahasuerus is, is thinking about her. The text says he remembered what she had done and what had been declared against her. Notice how very careful the writer is here to not suggest that Ahasuerus has any sense that he himself declared this against her, but that it was more like something that, that happened only because of what she had done. She did this thing, a decree was declared against her as a result. But what we have is a king who's pondering the whole situation, and this statement, he remembered, is an indication that he was sort of feeling sorry about the whole thing. He wanted to have her back. He was lonely. He wanted his queen. The ancient historian Josephus wrote that the king had a great regret and wanted to have her back, but he was trapped by his own law. If you know anything about the law of the Medes and the Persians, you know that once it was declared, it was once for all, it was settled and could not be changed, even by the king himself. Well, when the king isn't happy, nobody's happy. So with all of their youthful wisdom, the king's male attendants devise a quick plan for this competition. They will gather up all of the beautiful young virgins from all of the provinces of the kingdom they will be placed in the care of a eunuch for obvious reasons. If you don't know why those reasons are obvious, you can ask me later. So the women would essentially have been brought into this place. And there, they're under three levels of security. They're very well guarded. There was the citadel, which would have been heavily guarded itself. And then in the citadel, they were a part of the harem, which would have been a special place in the, the castle that was, that was sort of reserved for all of the king's women. And then on top of that, those who were participating in this competition had a third level of one watching over them, which was this eunuch by the name of Haggai. 
The implication of all this is that these women were reserved only for the king. No one else could look at them. No one else could have access to them. And once they were secured in the harem, they would be given all of the makeup and all of the perfumes and all of the beautiful clothes of the kingdom that they wanted. And one by one, eventually they would be paraded into the king's quarters. A new virgin would sleep with him every night, and when he had his way with each of them, he would decide which one pleased him the most, and she would be crowned as the next queen. And so what we have is young women, likely very young women, from all 127 provinces, uprooted and taken away from their families. Estimates range from 500, even over 1,000 women who would never have the opportunity to have a real relationship with a husband who would love her and cherish her and provide for her and protect her. 500 to 1,000 women from just as many families that were essentially to be denied a relationship as a daughter, as a wife, as a mother, as a sister. And think of all the young men. Who were they going to marry now? That's a lot of women to be taken out of the marriage pool. The reality was that if, if the, a woman didn't become a queen, at the end of this, there would only be one. After that first night with the king, she moved from being a beautiful young virgin to becoming an unmarriable concubine. Once her virginity had been taken away, nobody was able to marry her. And, and besides, from then on, they would all be at the king's service. They would live in lavish luxury. They would spend their days lounging around the palace doing nothing unless the king wanted them to do it. But, but amongst hundreds and over a thousand women, it was unlikely that any of them would do much of anything at all. Their lives were wasted, families were destroyed, opportunities for marriage and parenting were, were taken away, all of this to appeal to the king's carnal appetites because he was lonely one day. He was a man driven by lust, he was a man driven by fleshly desire, and verse 4 tells us that when he heard the plan without a bit of hesitation, this pleased the king and he did so. There was no thought given to the wisdom of such a decision. There was no reasoning through whether or not this was good for the commonwealth of the, the empire. This was a self-absorbed, womanizing, lustful man who wanted what he wanted, and he did not care how he was going to get it. The plan, though, shouldn't be really surprising to us, should it? It fits the pattern of excess that we already saw in chapter 1. Now take notice, this, this plan seems to have been something at work in the minds of the servants already. They were prepared. They jumped all over this. Ahasuerus doesn't have to worry about any of the details. They've already been worked out in advance. These servants are so very helpful. Notice they don't even bother with the standard that they usually, as they usually come to him. You notice through the text, they usually say, if it pleases the king. They didn't, they didn't feel the need to say that this time. Why? Because they knew. They knew this would please the king. And, and really, after all of this, we're left to wonder whether or not this supposed high and mighty king ever actually makes any decisions for himself at all that haven't been prompted by someone else. We'll see that play out time and time again throughout the book of Esther. Well, hopefully it's obvious to all of us how destructive and detestable the results are 
when anyone attempts to live life and make decisions by following after the lusts of the flesh, especially a person in power. The results are always evil. They have effect on, on many, many people. Now, by God's providence, it seems that nearly every day over the last few months, we've been hearing about celebrities or politicians who are accused of doing this very thing, of using their power to take advantage of other people, oftentimes very young people. It should remind us that that man today has in no way progressed beyond his sinful nature. We're not better than we used to be. And, and, and apart from Christ, King Ahasuerus is in every single one of us. Our nature, our flesh, our, our hearts, when they are not regenerated by Christ, when we are not new creations in Christ, everything is bent toward fulfilling our fleshly desires. When we, when we don't have the Holy Spirit to direct us in self-control, we only have undesirable consequences to deter us from evil actions. And so when someone is in a position of power and influence and they have a sense that they can get away with whatever they want to do, they, they will do it because without a new heart, they cannot not sin. And, and friend, you may, you may be a person here who's hearing this right now and you realize your first impulse in life is to act on whatever arises in your flesh. Your desires, in, instead of the, the sound, righteous truth of God's law and seeking to glorify God with your life, your desires drive your decisions. Your desires drive your actions. But the truth is, if you're not in Christ, your nature is bound in sin. And even, even though you might not act on every sinful desire that you have, you can't keep them all away. It's locked up in your heart. It burns within you. In many ways, it is who you are. When we become Christians, God doesn't make us perfect. We're going to see that in just a little bit. But, but in Christ, we have His perfect life to stand upon. That we can be declared righteous before God. We can have a right standing before God. And, and if you put the, to death the evil desires of the flesh, if that's going to happen, we first have to put on faith in Jesus Christ who gives us the opportunity to repent of our sins. He gives us a heart that desires to do that. So in reality, the lust of the flesh is a, is a constant pursuit that will never bring about the satisfaction that we desire. The carnal man, the men like King Ahasuerus, the desire is to always chase after whatever the flesh desires because if I can just get this one thing, all of my needs will be fulfilled. But when they get that one thing, the needs are not fulfilled and will be seeking after another. Your true longing is only fulfilled when you're made right with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you will always be directed toward the lust of your flesh. And it will always result in wicked practices. Well, the second thing for us to see this morning is that God's people sometimes make bad decisions. Now, in verses 5 through 7, we meet some very unlikely people, an unlikely hero and an unlikely heroine in this story. Now, first, we're introduced to Mordecai, who is identified as a Jew. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. It is a Babylonian name derived from the Babylonian god Marduk. 
And the name was likely given to him when he was born because he was brought up in exile. His family was exiled and he was born into that. It appears, it appears from the text that Mordecai was likely in a high up position in the Persian Empire given the access that he had to the citadel and the access that we will see that he had to, uh, to Esther herself in the story. Now we learn also here that Mordecai is from the family of King Saul. The text doesn't say that specifically, but if you look at his family lineage based on the information we're given, you find that to be true. And that's going to be important to us when we're introduced to Haman in chapter 3. Now in verse 7, we meet Hadassah, a Persian name meaning the Persian star derived from the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. But of course we see this is the Jewish girl Esther. Esther means myrtle wood, and in prophetic literature, myrtle wood is that which replaces the briars and the thistles to show God's faithfulness and his forgiveness and peace and thanksgiving. It is a sign of God's presence with his people. So, so we learn that Esther is Mordecai's cousin. There's a complicated way that the text says that, but that's what it, it says. Esther is Mordecai's cousin. He's quite a bit older than she is, and when she's without parents, he adopts her as his daughter. What we will see is that she's quite loyal to Mordecai. She trusts him implicitly. Esther, the text tells us in verse 7, is beautiful in every way. The idea we get is that wherever she goes, she catches everyone's attention. A Persian, uh, in, in, in this case, a Persian supermodel with, with, without any physical flaws based on the standards of beauty that they would have had in their day. So we see where this is going. She's obviously made a part of this competition to become queen. And in verses 8 through 11, we see that her poise and her charm and her beauty won over the eunuch's favor. Of all the women, he took a special liking to her and gave her extra care and gave her whatever she wanted or whatever he thought she needed. We learn in verse 9 that he provided her with lots of makeup and, and food and gave her helpers and moved her to the best part of the living quarters. She was being very well taken care of. He was captivated by this beautiful, charming, enchanting woman. In verse 10, we see that Esther doesn't make it known that she's a Jew. And this all comes by Mordecai's instruction. There's a lot of speculation as to why this might have been. Perhaps Mordecai knew that if, if Esther was in a certain position, in a certain place in the kingdom, that later on down the road that would become helpful. Uh, maybe identifying as a Jew would have become an obstacle to getting what they wanted or what they were after. We're not entirely sure as to the reason why he said not to identify herself as the Jew, but I think it's a problem, and we're going to look at that in a few moments. In verses 12 through 14, we see the process of preparation for the women going into the king. They're given, they're given more makeup, and they go through 12 months of body treatments. Now, guys, you might think your wife takes a long time in the bathroom, but 12 months, 12 months of, of spices and oils and perfumes and, and preparing themselves to go into the king. This wasn't a typical practice. It was, it was special for this moment. Matthew Henry has this wonderfully insightful comment here. He says this, even those who were masterpieces of nature must yet have all this help from art to recommend them to a vain and carnal mind. 
In other words, even the most beautiful women in the entire kingdom weren't going to be pleasing enough to the king on their own. And so the requirement was that they do all that they could to make themselves presentable, covering their imperfections, masking their scent with perfume, making sure their eyes and their lips and their noses look just right. And in verse 13, we see that they're able to take whatever clothing or whatever jewels they wanted to take with them as they went into the king's quarters. And so they're taken from their homes, they're taken away from their families, they're placed in a harem, they're given 12 months to become purified and prettied up, given all of the luxurious stuff that they want, all that they can spend one night with the king, and then they are sent off to become concubines, no longer beautiful virgins, but people put in the king's stables to be used whenever he called them by name. The implications are obvious yet again. This is a cruel system, and all of it is designed to fulfill the king's evil lusts. In verse 15, Esther goes into the king, taking with her only what the eunuch advised. He had some insider trading info that he gave her here because she had won his favor. It's likely that many of the other women had had gone in and they were overly fancy. They were trying too hard. Esther was naturally very beautiful. She had already impressed everyone. It wasn't just her looks. It was how she carried herself. It was how she was naturally presented. And so likely she went in with very little. In verse 16, we get the note of sadness. Four years after Vashti is deposed, Esther spends a night with the king, wins his heart, becomes the queen, and in the end, the king is delighted to show her off at a huge banquet. Sound familiar? And in fact, it becomes a holiday. It's Esther's day. There was partying. Surprise, surprise. There was a massive feast. There was a remission of taxes. Not so bad. There were gifts given all over the land. So we see a daughter of Israel, one of God's daughters, taken into a pagan palace to marry a pagan king. And while the wicked king celebrated, all of God's people should be quick to mourn. You see, the reality of what we see here is that God's people can make some bad decisions sometimes. Now, a lot of commentators on Esther try to make this out to be something other than what it was, but I want to convince you that Mordecai and Esther here are an example of that sometimes we do things we shouldn't do. There are at least five ways in which I think biblical faithfulness is compromised in this story. The first is this. Esther never resists the king's edict. In verse 8, it appears that she went very willingly. Compare that to what we saw last week with, with Vashti, who stood for her own personal integrity in spite of the king's command. She was willing to lose her life instead of fulfilling his wicked, fleshly desires. But not Esther. She went without question. But perhaps more troubling is that Mordecai went along with it all the way. Remember, he was raising her as his daughter. Dads, can you imagine this? How would you respond? I'll tell you how I would respond. You, you want my daughter? You're going to have to get through me first. And to get through me, you're going to have to kill me because there's no other way you're going to touch her. You're going to have to cut my head off and put me in the ground before you ever get to her. 
And if you kill me, you better think twice because I'll make sure she's protected, that she doesn't fall into your sick, perverted plan. So whatever Mordecai's final plan was, it came at the expense of Esther's purity and, and her dignity. It was, it was shameful. It was a capitulation on his part, and it was shameful. Secondly, in verse 9, we see that Esther eats the king's food. That may not seem significant, but remember, she was a Jew under the Old Covenant. And the food she was being served in a pagan citadel was not in accordance with the law of God, but she eats it anyway. And you may say, well, she needed something to eat. What was she going to do? Well, we, we see very clearly that the, the eunuch was taking very good care of her, giving her whatever she wanted. I seem to remember a few young boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were told they had to eat of the king's food, they rejected it. And they took vegetables and water instead. And what did God do? God blessed them. God strengthened them because of their faithfulness. But not Esther. She compromises God's law. She compromises her standing as one of God's children. Now, I'm thankful we don't have the dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant, but we do have a responsibility as Christians to live as people of conviction with an unwillingness to compromise on even the smallest things that God commands. And we realize that these aren't things that God is putting before us as measuring rods to see how faithful we are, to test us, to see if we'll actually obey us. But he does this because he knows what's best for us. He wants what's best for us and he commands what's best for us so that our lives will go well. Obedience to God's commands are always the right answer, no matter what the consequences. Thirdly, in verse 10, we see a compromise of faith. A denial, or best case scenario, just silence about who she truly is as one of God's children. I, I think it's overly optimistic to think that Mordecai had some great and noble plan for the future, and so he's organizing everything to that end. I think Mordecai saw uh, Esther's Jewishness as something that would have stood in the way of her being on the throne as the queen, and having her on the throne would have helped him in the long run, so he didn't want to interfere with that. And so, in essence, political posturing took the place of affirming her standing with God. You see, it's not just a compromise to deny the faith in the, faith of, in the face of persecution like Peter did. But sometimes our silence is just as much a compromise when we're unwilling to identify ourselves with Jesus because of a fear of man, because we're scared of what people will think or what they'll do and how they'll respond. Fourth, we see in verse 16, a compromise of morality. Esther willingly, and in fact with much planning and forethought, she sleeps with the king. She forfeits her purity as a virgin to fulfill his carnal desires. And again, you might be wanting to defend Esther's action here and, and thinking that, that she didn't have a choice, but there was no fight at all. There, there was no pushback at all. Remember Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Remember how she burned for Joseph and, and was trying always to posture herself to get a hold of him. And, and once, finally, she got him alone. She made a move toward him. And he did everything he could to flee, leaving his valued cloak behind that she might use that as an instrument to charge him with rape. But he saved 
his own purity. He saved his own dignity. He was willing to pay the price knowing that it was costly to preserve himself and to stand his ground of holiness before God. Esther took the expedient route to safety. She went along with her role in the competition, perhaps even being assured by the eunuch that she had a very good chance of winning this competition. Well, the fifth compromise here in the end is a compromise of marriage. Against God's command, Esther marries a pagan king. In Deuteronomy 7, the Jews were forbidden from intermarriage in the heathen nations, and yet she follows through without a word of concern or objection. You know, we, we see this so often today when, when we have young people who profess faith in Christ, they enter into relationships they desire with those who are not in Christ. They grow impatient. They're not waiting any longer for a suitable mate who is in Christ that they can edify and encourage and build one another up in Christ. What happens in time is that, that when two people get in the boat together and one's rowing toward Christ and the other has no desire to do so is that they're going in different directions. And, and, and in the midst of this, a terrible fight ensues as to where it's either going to get tossed over completely or one person will eventually give up and start rowing in the same direction as the other. And let's be clear, the person who gives up is never the non-believer. Because apart from the work of God... They will never be willing on their own to follow Christ. And and we will see the ways in which Esther herself compromises in big ways as a result of her marriage to a pagan king. So you see, the reality is that we expect pagans to make bad, evil decisions. The things that King Ahasuerus did should not be surprising to us. sad but not surprising. But here we see Mordecai and Esther lacking in biblical integrity in various ways. We have, a, we have a lot of examples of that in Scripture, don't we? We have a lot of examples of faithfulness in the face of difficulty and adversity and, and trials and hard decisions. But we also have plenty of examples of those same people in the Bible making foolish, unwise sinful decisions, doing really stupid things, compromising their faith, compromising their standing before God and the people of the world. And you know, God has given us those things. He's reminded us that even the great people of faith that we read about in the Bible, they were people like you and I. They were loved by God and cared for by God and carried along by God just like you and I in spite of these things. But all of this should bring to the surface a question for all of us. Do I live my life in such a way that I'm making decisions out of biblical faithfulness instead of convenience? The last thing for us to see this morning is that the the purposes of God can never be thwarted. Lest we end on a sour note, here's the comfort in all of this. The invisible hand of God is directing everything from beginning to end. So even our bad decisions as his people are part of his divine appointments. The wicked decisions of evil men, the bad decisions of God's people are all enveloped in God's plan. Now please do not hear me wrong here. This doesn't mean that we should be comfortable with making bad decisions. 
This doesn't mean we should be fatalists and say, well, whatever I do is a part of God's divine plan. He's going to work it all out in the end, so I'm just going to do whatever I want and, and trust God to work it all out. That's evil. That's evil. That is a, a terrible distortion of the, of the reality. It's a betrayal of faithfulness to God. We should always strive to make decisions in our lives and, and, and live with actions in our lives under divine direction. However, we will sin in this life. And, and when we make bad decisions, we've not thwarted God's plan. He has a plan that is worked out in spite of us. So we didn't always need to be looking back at everything we've done and every action we've taken and ask what if. You know, with God, there are no what ifs. Everything is in God's plan and will work out to his ends. But what we will see through the book of Esther is that even though Mordecai and even though Esther don't always do what they ought to do, God will use them anyway. His purposes will be fulfilled. We can take comfort in that. Knowing that at the end of the day, God uses us despite us, and God will be glorified. God will override and overrule our compromises and our bad decisions and our sinful directions because He is the true King, and He will always do what's best for His queen, the church. Look, all of us are going to screw up. Maybe this morning you've had an epic screw-up on your way to church. We're broken, we're sinful, we do dumb things sometimes. The question is not whether or not you're going to do that. The question is what you're going to do about it. Will you try to cover it up? Will you try to hide from it? Will you try to run away from it or, or pretend it never happened? Or will you repent? For your good, that you may have faithful, joyful, close communion with God, put it all before God. He already knows what you've done. He already knows what's in your heart. He's already worked it all out in his plan. So have an honest heart before God that you may walk in the freedom of a clean and clear conscience, depending not on your own righteousness, but on that which Christ alone provides. And here's the beautiful thing in all of that. To get all of the benefits of God in the Lord Jesus, there is no competition. We don't have to try to outdo one another to win God's favor in some competition to be close to the king because we can't do enough and we won't do enough. But we don't have to try and cleanse ourselves for 12 months or clean ourselves up or, or to make sure that all of the things we say and do are just right before we can come to God. You'll never be good enough for God on your own, but in Christ you will have all that you need to be loved, to be cherished, to be cared for, and to be made whole forever and ever.